0: All right, well, last week, in the first 10 verses of this chapter, we noted how God always takes the initiative. We saw that God reveals himself for the purpose of orienting our relationships rightly with him, and for the fact that our response, therefore, is to be one of adoration and service. When God takes the initiative, he seeks people out. God is not just waiting there, hoping someone will stumble upon him. God did not hope that you would stumble upon him. He sought you out. He called you by name, and you heard, and you responded. Coming into relationship with God is a disrupting event. And furthermore, along the path of discipleship, God occasionally comes along and breaks into our mind-numbing routine to grab our attention in such a way that we lift our eyes off of what appears to be real to see and observe and consider a grander reality. God does not leave us where we are. An encounter with God, coming into relationship with the living God, always changes you. You emerge from the situation unable to live life on your own terms again. You're transformed, and you now live for the purposes of another. It is a vain and idle thought to think that you can have God be the cherry on the top of your otherwise contented life, where he leaves you alone, never asks anything, never expects anything, and you just call on him when you think you have a need, But otherwise, he stays blissfully out of your business. That is not the God of the Bible. That God is not a consuming fire. Now, God is on a mission to make himself known. And the book of Exodus underscores the missionary heart of God. We see that the end state is going to be that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in the meantime, God calls people to himself and commissions them and sends them out as his emissaries, as his ambassadors, to spread the good news of the kingdom, to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The same one who tells Moses to go. That angel of the Lord who we learned is the pre-incarnate accommodation of the second person of the Trinity is the same being who millennia later tells his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We have been a commission to go. And we learn in verse 12 of our own verse that the End result of deliverance. the natural outcome of salvation is worship. The people of God are delivered, according to verse 12, for the purpose of worship. That is why, what we do as Christians, that is why what we do as a church, everything that we can busy ourselves with, it all points to worship organizationally, the biggest, most important, most urgent thing we do is worship the living God because it is for that purpose we were saved. We engage in other tasks. We're sending out missionaries. Mike, have a blessed missionary trip. We do evangelism. We, we do Bible studies. We, we have fellowship groups. And, and, and all those activities have at their core and their heart the making of a true worshiper of God. Because it is only in worshiping the true and living God that we find what we were created for. and We find rest and contentment for our souls. So worship is the end goal of salvation. But God is a consuming fire. We learn in chapter 3, we learned last week that he is holy. And in chapter 3, that's the first time holiness is attributed to God. And so Moses comes to behold this spectacle, but he's told to come no further. And he's told to take off his shoes. God must be approached on his own terms, God is to be approached and received. But he is not to be trifled with. He is a holy God. Our passage is all about Moses' response to his call. God calls us all to something. We talked last week about how this points to the doctrine of vocation. And it naturally segues into how we need to go tell people about Jesus. And we do. But there is more to kingdom life. There is more than simply evangelism. God oftentimes calls us to hard things. Obedience to Christ involves us having to engage in activities that we don't normally want to do. Maybe what God has called you to do is faithfulness in the midst of a profession where there's a whole lot of pressure to cut corners to fudge on the legality of certain things maybe what God is calling you to do is to be faithful to a spouse that is incredibly difficult maybe what God is calling you to do is forgive someone who has wronged you all this Is kingdom life. Maybe God is calling you simply to say hi to our visitors. And I know how the thought process goes. You see a visitor, oh, we have a visitor. That's great. I should go say hi to him. And then you think, well, what if I don't have anything in common? What what if I sound like an idiot? What if I have bad breath? Caused by gingivitis. No, coffee breath. What, what, what happens if I, if I stutter? Oh, I, I see they're, they're closer to Gene. Oh, <laughs> Lord, put it on Gene's heart to go say hi to him. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? I mean, uh, maybe y'all are much more holy than me, I'm sure. What would it look like for us to step out of our comfort zone And respond in faith. We all have a call, and we're all called to something hard. How do we respond? Now, this passage is all about God's grace to Moses in the midst of his sense of inadequacy, his insecurity, his reluctance with his call. Okay? Even when it says in chapter 4, verse 14, that his anger was kindled against Moses after his fifth attempt to shirk the call. Even then, the Lord doesn't say, I will kill you, fool. The Lord does not say, I am sick of you. The Lord doesn't flare up that fire, turn it into a white flame, and threaten to singe his eyebrows. No, what does the Lord do? He gives him a teammate. He says, here's your brother to help you. All right? So even in the midst of anger, or maybe in spite of anger, the Lord still is giving grace to his servant. Now, God is on a mission, and he's about to engage in warfare on behalf of his people. And that corresponds roughly to the fact that we are engaged in a great spiritual war. And this warfare is going to be, be unique, what he does here in Egypt. Uh, normally, you would think that for the people of Israel to be liberated, the result would be the, that, that Pharaoh would be killed, and you would have Moses' spear or sword implanted firmly in Pharaoh, and they would march over his body. But instead, what you have is Pharaoh driving them out. Normally, plundering is the final act of warfare. You've conquered the enemy, and now you're stripping their bodies, you're raiding their tents, you're plundering them. But what happens here? Well, according to what God says in chapter 3, verses 22, 21 and 22, He's going to give favor. And so the women, not the warriors, are going to go ask for stuff, and it will be given freely. They're not going to be stripping corpses. They're just going to be asking for stuff, and it's going to be given to them. So the kind of warfare that God is going to engage in is the kind of warfare that's going to result in changed hearts and dispositions that result in the people of God getting what they have coming, which is back pay for hundreds of years. God fights wars. But it's amazing what he does. He doesn't just kill people. He changes their heart. And that's an awesome thing. Now the problem for us is that in the midst of God's promises, we still doubt. We still question. We still think that we are inadequate. Moses tries to evade God's call five times, which is in miniature testimony to what the Bible later reveals, that God is slow to anger. He answers Moses' objections. If you look at chapter uh, 3, verse 18, God says to him that the elders will listen to his voice. So it's a certainty but Moses is doubting in chapter 4. What They won't listen. They won't listen. And God accommodates his frailty by speaking in terms of contingency when he gives signs, if they won't believe this, they'll believe that. God is accommodating the frailty of his weak servant because he's gracious and kind-hearted. But I want you to know that behind all of Moses' objections is fundamentally a fear of going back to Egypt. Honestly, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and and lead these people out? He cannot help but think about the fact that 40 years prior, he had already tried to bring deliverance. And how had it turned out? It turned out with him running away as a fugitive. It turned out with the people he thought would jump on the bandwagon, mocking him and refuting him. His failures loom large in his mind, and they stick with him. His failure to lead in Egypt is more real to him than his success at the well when he delivered the daughters of his father-in-law from those shepherds. Isn't that how it works for us? We oftentimes size ourselves up and our ability to respond to God's calling on the basis of what we think has happened in the past. We are haunted by memories of hurts, failures, and they dog at our heels, nipping at us. God wants you to know He's bigger than your past. He's bigger than your failures. He's bigger than your problems. Now, God calls you to serve, right? And I want you to know that you may feel inadequate, you may feel insecure in your calling. But this passage addresses that head on. Uh, First, I want you to know it's not about you. It is not about you. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 11. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Well, I'll tell you what. I have been formally taught counseling methodologies. I've read the major theorists. I I went to CPE, and and I've been taught and all this jazz. I've had practicums. I've been graded, all this stuff. And I can tell you that despite the nuances, the basic gist of all these counseling theories involves positivism and affirmation. So if you were in Moses' shoes... And you were to come to me and, and you were to tell me that God had told you to go to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and lead the people out. And if I were to counsel you along the lines of modern counseling theory, I would say, beware the danger of negative thinking. Have confidence in yourself. Have confidence in Confidence. And I would rehash your resume. I would say to you, Moses, you're just the man God could use for this. You were raised in the household of Pharaoh. You received the finest education in the land. You are Egyptian enough to know how to interact with the Egyptians. You know how the system works. But what's more, Moses, you're, you're a Hebrew by birth. And you identified with the Hebrews, so you're Hebrew enough to love the people, to lead the people. So Moses, really, there's no one better for God to pick. That's what we would do if we were counseling Moses on the basis of modern counseling theory. But what is the striking thing here? God doesn't do that. As if to say, you're right, Moses, who are you to do this? What does God say? What is God's response to Moses' sense of inadequacy? Verse 12. But I will be with you. I will be with you. In fact, throughout the pages of Scripture, the response to our fear and our sense of inadequacy and our insecurity with our task, the answer is always, I will be with you. One of my favorite passages, it's beautiful, is Genesis 46. Old man Jacob has just learned that his son, whom he thought has been dead for decades, is alive. And he's going down to Egypt, or he's getting ready to go down to Egypt. But that gives a man pause, because it's not just a big move, but, I mean, Egypt is big, and it's dangerous. And so Jacob is afraid. And so in a vision of the night, the Lord shows up. And as we learned last week, the doubling of a name always conveys emotional intensity. And the Lord says, Jacob, Jacob. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I myself will go down with you, and I myself will bring you up again, and your son Joseph, he will close your eyes. That's beautiful, but it's not just to Jacob. It's not just to Moses. It's not just to Joshua. It's not just to Gideon. It's not just to David. It's not just to Jeremiah. What does Jesus tell us? I am with you always, even to the end. And so in Acts 23, when, Saul, when, when when Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem, and it's been quite a, he's had quite a day. I mean, he's almost scourged by the Romans. He's almost torn apart by a mob. He's almost scourged by the Romans. He's—he's. You think you had a bad day? That's a bad day. And he's sitting in his cell, and the Lord appears and stands beside him. Just as you have testified to me here, you must testify about me in Rome. The Lord is with us. Now we face real fears. Okay, God does not respond to Moses by saying, what do you mean, who do you think you are? Pharaoh's just a man. He's nobody. He doesn't say that. He acknowledges the reality of our fears. But what he does is he takes the focus off of the bigness of the fear and instead puts it on the bigness of the one who is with us. It's not you who can do these things. It is the Lord with you, empowering you, strengthening you, sustaining you, comforting you, encouraging you, giving you the, the, the fire in your belly sometimes that you need to stand up in the midst of difficulty. Have you ever faced a, a situation and, and you had to do it and, and, and you could feel your bones melting within you and, and, and if you had your will and your way, you would just melt but something is a fire inside you and you stand anyway and you say and do what needs to be said and done. The Lord is with you. He's always with you. And so the problem is that so often we're insecure and we feel inadequate because we're focusing on ourselves. Who am I? We should be asking, whose. Am I? I love what Paul says in Acts. About to have a shipwreck. And he says, don't worry guys. Last night a messenger of the God whose I am told me it's all going to be okay. Paul's strength comes from knowing not who he is. But knowing whose he is, do you know whose you are? Who you are means nothing. Whose you are means everything. And it will empower you to do anything. Whose you are. And as we learn in verses 13 to 15, we are the Lord's. Now, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 3 has been the subject of so much ink. A, a, one of the footnotes in my book lists, lists over 400 published studies that have been conducted in the 20th century alone. That's a lot, okay? Verses 13 to 15 are some of the most complex theology, Some of the most profound theology. And I do think it's interesting that Moses asks for a name and he's given a theology. Moses wants to know the name of the God sending him. We learn in the rest of Scripture that the Israelites had gone native in Egypt. That they were worshiping the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt had over, we know of over 2200 named deities of Egypt. 2200, they had a deity for every season, every occurrence, every profession, every eventuality. Everything had a deity. The Nile itself was a deity. Okay, And the basic idea behind paganism is, if you know which god you're dealing with, that gives you a little bit of access and control. Because as soon as you know the deity you're dealing with, you know what this deity is like. You know what what this deity wants, and you know what this deity can do for you. So which God are you? What is your name? There's 2,200 of them plus that we know of. Instead, God says, I am who I am. That's profound. Some think it's kind of an evasive answer. Don't worry about my name. But no. I believe that it is a name. And I believe that it's a name that testifies, first and foremost, to, the, to his utter uniqueness. The gods of the pagans began. You know, if, if you read Greek mythology, that's, that's probably the mythology most of you are more familiar with. The, the gods sprang forth from the primordial forces that were at the beginning. Okay, the gods had a beginning, and the gods were in the process of becoming but the Lord, he is. He reveals himself with the, what we call the tetragrammaton. The, and that's Greek for the four letters. Those four letters that make the, the, what we say Yahweh. Those four letters have no vowel points. And simply changing the vowel points, it can either be past tense, present tense, or future tense. All at the same time. So God was, God is. God will be. And the way you express eternality best to our minds is to think in terms of an eternal present tense. God is. I am. It expresses God's utter incomprehensibility. You can't put God in a box as if you you identify him that you can therefore somehow figure out a way to get him ingratiated to you. God is that consuming fire that you're looking at, Moses. God exists from before all time. In him is all life, sustenance, and being. And I'm here for you. We offer God nothing that he needs. I don't need your sacrifices to sustain my existence, I don't need your worship to make me feel better because I'm blue. I don't need your following because I'm lonely. I have all that I need. I am what I am. And I am here not for my, I'm here for your benefit, not to fill up some lack in myself. So when he says I am, it blows our minds. But it states more than just his eternality and being. Implied in this is his presence. The word Yahweh, those vowels, are the same vowels used in verse 12 when it says, I will be with you, I will be. And God identifies himself. This is what you cannot forget. In verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is his name forever. And reread our passage later. Every subsequent time that he's introduced, it's the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like he takes on his people as his name. God is not ashamed to be identified with his covenant With his people. God is not ashamed to be identified with you. The amazing thing is that in the council of the Trinity from eternity past, God gave his people as a love gift to the Son. And the Son accepted I will pay for their sins. I will make them righteous. And at the end of all time, we will be presented back to the Father in pristine beauty. It's described as a bride, presented to her groom. You are a love gift from God the Father to God the Son that the Son accepts. God is not ashamed to be identify you. And he, and he takes that covenant seriously, so seriously, that he bears it as part of his name. He's identified by it. So you're in some hard circumstance. And you're wondering, is God there for me? He identifies with you. And he's always there. And because of who he is, you don't have to figure out, you don't have to God hop. You don't have to worry about the God of careers, the God of love life, the God of fertility. You don't got to hop. God is. He's everything his people need all the time in whatever circumstance they are in. And he's eternally for his people. That's awesome. So when you go to Egypt, wherever Egypt is for you, and you carry out whatever call God has set upon you, know that you are his and he is with you and he will surely do it. But lastly, I want you to remember, and this just gets to the rub right now. You're more than a stick. Okay? You are more than a stick. In verses 10 to 17, we get introduced to Moses' staff, his shepherd's staff. And through it, God does some pretty amazing things. I mean, right here, he turns it into a snake, and but he, he's not done. He's going to do some amazing things with this staff of Moses. But the staff of Moses is just a stick. And you are more than that. Moses gets bogged down with his lack of ability to speak. He talks about it in verse 10. And quite frankly, we don't really know what he means. Does he have a stuttering problem? A stammering problem? A physical defect that prevents him speaking? Uh, is, it just that, is it just that he's not quick on his feet He's not very eloquent He's, he's no Cicero uh, what, what, Or is it just a straight up excuse Is he just making stuff up We don't know I mean he According to Acts 7 When Stephen talks about him He says that Moses was a man mighty in word And if you read the rest of the Pentateuch Moses has a lot to say I mean, for, for, in the words of Tevye, for a man slow of tongue, he sure talks a lot. Okay? If you know who Tevye is, uh, there you go. But uh, fiddler on the roof. Um, and even Aaron. Aaron's his mouthpiece, but by chapter 6, Aaron's kind of, Moses is talking for himself. So I tend to think he's making an excuse based upon a lack of confidence in his own abilities. That's what I think it is. We tend to think of our usefulness in terms of our self-assessment of our abilities and our giftedness. And we tend to think that if, if, if I've been blessed or endowed with great graces, then God can use me. And if I haven't been blessed or endowed with those skills or gifts, then I'm kind of disqualified. And what's a shame is that we tend to evaluate ourselves in the light of people who we think are better. Amadeus, the movie Amadeus, has a great, the basic gist of the movie is you have a a composer, a court composer, Antonio Soleri, who was a real guy, who was was a great composer. And he's a pious man. And he's giving God the glory for his giftedness and his talent. But then along comes Mozart, the original rock star. Okay, and Mozart is an immoral, loudmouth, buffoon of a man. But musically, Mozart, I mean, he's Mozart. And he becomes, Solari becomes angry and bitter that this wretch of a man is, is genius. And he forgets his own skill. And he thinks of himself as merely mediocre, even though by our, he's a master. Okay, that's what will happen to you if you think only in terms of the, the, the absolute tip of the iceberg. Okay? If you think that to do evangelism you gotta be like Billy Graham, you're wrong. If you think that you gotta be like R.C. Sproul to teach someone, you're wrong. If you think that you gotta be like Cornelius Van Til or, or, or Ravi Zacharias to do apologetics, you're wrong. God is with us. And he will work with us to accomplish whatever task it is that he has given to us. I've heard so many people, I can't share my faith. I don't know how to share the gospel. Share what convinced you. It's simple. And here's what's funny. Moses thinks little of his abilities. And God's like, I will will, work with that. But in verse 14, God God gives an accommodation to Moses and says, Okay, I'll give your brother. Look at the text. It's God who says your brother's a great speaker. But I'll be with his mouth. Moses looks at his lack of skill as a hurdle. We think that lack of skill is an obstacle and that the presence of skill means that we can do it easy peasy. Moses' lack of skill, Aaron's presence of skill, it both means nothing. God has to be with you for you to succeed at all, no matter what your natural graces are. So stop looking at your inabilities or your disabilities as a hindrance to service. Verse 11, when when Moses says, I'm slow of speech, and I was slow of speech before, and since you've talked to me, Lord, you haven't done anything about it. He sure, he has a lot of chutzpah, doesn't he? See, a Yiddishism? He's a Jewish guy. Anyway, uh, he's talking freely to God. But what does God say in 11? This is amazing, and I want you to really take this to heart for yourself. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go. God didn't just make the first man, God makes every man. And He makes them as they are. Yes, God makes them as they are. Who makes them blind? Who makes them mute? Who makes them deaf? Who makes them short? Who makes them uncoordinated? Who makes them metabolically challenged? Who makes them constitutionally infirm? Whatever you think is your problem, God has created you. And your state is no obstacle for him. Think in terms of, think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may know her. Great woman. In the 60s, she's just a teen. She dives and, and, and she cracks the vertebrae at the base of her skull. She's a quadriplegic. She's, she's, she's crippled from the shoulders down. And she railed against God for a while. But if that hadn't happened to her, she wouldn't be Johnny Erickson Tata. There would be no Johnny and friends. Untold myriads of people would never have encountered the living God because of her ministry if she had not had her neck snapped. And you think your weaknesses prevent you from serving. You think your shortcomings and your past failures and your defects and your lack of ability are obstacles to the living God who, even now, Moses is a burning fire in the midst of a bush not being consumed. God is a mighty God. And it's oftentimes the very thing that we think is our shortcoming that is the segue to real and powerful ministry. Make no excuses. Jump and say, Yes, Lord, here am I. It's true that when Moses was first approached by God, he should have. If he was faithful and obedient the way we know he should have been, he should have said, yes, Lord, but he didn't. But in the end, he did, and that's the important thing. There could be some of you right here, right now, who up to this moment have been balking and making excuses about why God's call on your life is too much or too great, or too hard. It's not too late. Don't miss out on the good that could be yours. The good of being part of God's redemptive plan. Say yes, Lord. In the last half of verse 12, he gives Moses a sign. The sign that I am with you, Moses, is that when all of this is done, you'll be worshiping again at this, at this mountain. So the sign is something that he's not going to see until after the fact. But it's only after the fact that retrospectively he's going to look back and be able to say, wow, God was with me. And that's the same so often for you and me. You want to know if God's with you? Then step off the edge, brother. Take the dive, sister, and see that the Lord is good. Our God has called you, man. it's not about you. It's about the one whose you are, and he will never let you go. Let's pray.